This is Authors in Focus. I'm James Reed, a fantasy author publishing under JMD Reed. The first volume of my epic 12-book fantasy series, Shadow of the Dragon, is available for purchase. Check out Foundation of Courage. Today, I'm joined by Raven Oak. She is the author of A Mask in Blood, Bohem Series Book 1. How are you doing today, Raven? I'm doing fine. How are you doing? Well, you know, I'm... Uh sitting at home instead of being on my vacation to Japan because they are they're still not letting tourists in. But, you know, that's uh, life these days. Yes, it is. All right. So, Raven, I'd like to start these pa- these interviews off with a fun question or two. So, are you a Monday person? No. <laughs> I very much feel like Monday should be part of the weekend and everybody should have a four-day work week. Then Tuesdays would just become Monday. Yeah, but, you know, there's something about a four-day work week that people tend to get more work done and feel a little bit more energized on a Tuesday than a Monday. There's just something wrong with Monday. Mm, I like working splits, where I'd work three days and have a day off, work two days have a day off. I that always like that. Too. Yeah. It I always like that. Vacations. <laughs> no, but it's just, I don't know, you just you only work a couple days and you get a day off, and you work yeah. a couple days and get a day off. I always like that. But then now I, I work at home, so I just work every day. I don't know what yeah, I, I know Even that. Even when I'm on vacation, I work. <laughs> yup. I've been known to uh, put in my daily words on Christmas. So, yes, I'm right there with you. Yeah, no, I've done that before. So, um, how long have you wanted to be an author, Raven? Uh, I think since before I could properly speak, probably, I learned to read at a very early age. I was two and a half. I think, and um, I I tell people that I was the kid who always got in trouble because I elaborated everything, and everything became a big story. So if I was four and I climbed a tree and I fell down and part of my shirt tore, you know, we were really poor, so that was a bad thing for, for clothing to get ruined that quickly. And so I would go home and it would be, you know, well, I climbed a tree to save a cat because a cat was stuck in the tree. And then when I was climbing down, this troll hopped out and it like attacked me. And so I had to I had to defend myself and it tore my shirt. And since I just grew up with this idea that everything could be a story, I wrote, I guess, my first serious book the summer of sixth grade. It was 400 something pages of basically Anne McCaffrey's Pern fan fiction. But I thought I was the shit because I wrote this massive novel and I drew all these maps and I created character sheets and I did all this stuff that I thought a serious author did, which I did. But, uh, you know, I was 12 and so it wasn't very good. But I've just always needed to tell stories. I get that. Um, there's always the uh, I mean, I wrote um, I wrote video game novel stuff when I was in junior high and high school, uh, you know, taking like a like JRPGs and turning them into like books. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I definitely understand that. Uh, <laughs> I thought, you know, it was good stuff, right? You know, just copying someone else's. I wasn't even like creating my own story. I was just like turning the story and I was like adapting it from like a video game into a novel. Mm-hmm. So, that still takes yeah. work, though. I mean, that that is building. I, I, I did have to do all the descriptions, but I was cribbing a lot of the dialogue. 
Because, <laughs> you know, like, I'm adapting it. So, like, I want the dialogue because it's, yeah. like, I like yeah. the dialogue. You know, sometimes you got to add stuff, but, you know. <laughs> I'm one of those people who like hardcore faithful adaptations, so mm-hmm. I'm not going to add stuff. It's not like a movie where there's runtime. I have a novel. You can you can make huge novels and stuff them full of stuff. It sucks. Yeah. It even works. But, yeah, so that's a – I did that. But uh, now I write my own stuff, and that's fun. Yes. And you also write your own stuff, which leads us to talking about your novel, A Mask in the Blood, which is about Adelai, who uh, is one of the best that this the Order has, and she has been sent on a suicide mission. You want to tell us about Adelai, her mission, and what is going on in your book? Sure. So I tell people, if you're curious about how to spell it and how to uh, pronounce it, think of the word Alaskan, like you're from Alaska. Replace the L with an M, you get a maskin. That's how it's spelled. That's how it's pronounced. And, she told uh, me that before I said this, and I still mispronounced it. Uh, I don't know that you did, but I just wanted to make it clear for listeners. It's like if they were going to later try to Google it or whatever, you know, and they're like, what word were they saying? I, you know, it sometimes helps if I give them a little clue. Um, but I was sitting back, and I had watched a lot of Leverage, the old one before the reboot, because this book's been out for a while. And um, I liked the idea of Wait, someone- hold on. Can we Can we go back to Leverage? Sure. Are we talking the TV show? Yes. Yes, the TV show. There was a reboot of the TV show? There was. It's on Amazon Prime. Oh, so so the the original one was the one that was that aired like 20 years ago, right? Yeah, on TNT. Yep. Okay, cool. That I like that show. Yes. And if be, you're not familiar I was curious with if that was the re with that was like the re the remake yeah. or whatever. If you're not familiar with Leverage, you should check it out. It's basically these great show. Who are, you know, hackers and, you know, thieves and all these things that um, we the typically see men. bad. Yeah, yeah the con, con men that use their conning evil ways for good. It's a great, exactly. it's a great story. It's, exa- it's a great story well, about redemption. and Exactly. It's, it's redemption, yeah. but it's also seeking justice for people who do not have the money or the means to be able to do so where the law has failed them. But and it must be a lot of, like, the A-team, right? Yes, like, yes. A yeah, 2000 version of the A-team. Very much. And... That's a concept that I've always loved. I like gray characters, people who represent, well, humanity. I mean, you're talking about people who were all just one bad day away from being able to do things we never thought ourselves capable of. And so, you know, if you're pushed enough, people can do bad things. So no one, I think, is completely innocent necessarily by the time they reach adulthood. And I like you're the pushed idea. enough or... Or given permission to. Exactly, exactly. And I liked that idea of gray characters doing things like seeking justice for others. And so in the world of Boahim, this <clears throat> order of Amaska, they train very much to be assassins. But they don't like the word assassin because that implies they're doing something wrong. They are the Order of Amaska because they actually worship the God of Justice, and their job is that anyone can seek them as a to, as seek them as a client, and they will go out and seek justice. They will research, figure out who's in the wrong, and and get justice for people who deserve it. Because not everybody has a king in their pocket to be able to go, hey man, this this other person messed me up, and and get justice for it. So that's what they do, and. Adelaide did not start at the order. She actually started in a kingdom, several kingdoms away, and was kidnapped. She thinks that her birth parents sold her for a peace treaty, 
And so she, as a child, is raised by the order and becomes one of the best Damascans that they've had. And she gets sent into the hands of the order's worst enemy, which happens to be her birth father. And she's sent there to protect her family, basically, her birth family. And so the story is very much about chosen family versus birth families or biological families and what all of that means. And so she's having to figure that out while trying to save all these people and basically stave off civil war. And I also set it up in such a way that her 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 twin sister is intentionally the trope heavy spoiled princess. And I did that because as Adelaide is trying to protect her sister and trying to figure things out, she learns things from this spoiled princess and the spoiled princess learns things about real life from her sister Adelaide. So they kind of do a little bit of flipping places at times as they're growing as characters and as people. And so that's that's kind of what the book focuses on. And uh, I didn't know it at the time, but I actually was contacted by my birth mother for the first time when I started writing this. And so some of the emotions I was going through with chosen family versus birth family, finding myself having sisters I didn't know I had, you know, things like that. A lot of those emotions and conflicts went into the writing of it without my realizing I was doing it because I was kind of channeling myself into Adelaide, I think, a little bit. I don't know. I kind of get that. When I was, um, I think, 24, I found out I had a half-brother that I didn't know about. It was between me and my brother in age. Mm-hmm. So that was that was weird. Very much. Yeah, yeah. My mom dropped it to me so casually because she thought I knew. That, like, my dad had an affair, like, you know, with this yeah. woman in Canada and knocked her up. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> like, no, you never told me that. Yeah. So it was a little, it was a little, it was another reason why I don't speak with my dad. Well, I mean, I did not know of my half-sisters, but I did know of my mother. I mean, I didn't grow up ignorant of her. It was more that she left us when I was born and decided to choose drugs over us. So, you know, I'd always grown up with these stories of what kind of person she was. So when she contacted me, you know, my first reaction was, hell no. You know, you really did some serious harm to our family and I'm not interested. And it didn't work out, unfortunately. But, um, you know, I gave it a shot and it was a really wild experience for sure. That's just how it goes. You pour yourself into your writing and sometimes you don't necessarily know you're doing it, mm-hmm. you know, because that is your subconscious is, you know, messing yeah. around. Yeah. I don't know. I think that's why one of the things I like about writing is getting stuff out. So at least you are able to channel into something positive. Yes, that is for that's, sure. So kind of um, what was sort of the inspiration behind uh, Adelaide's story? Um, Again, you know, just looking at fiction and you know, before the lives of Locke Lamour, the, there was a, a serious missing element of gray characters. There were some writers doing it, but it wasn't really popular anymore. And then it kind of got popularized, popularized again. Um, and before even looking at the Lies book, you know, I just I really felt like we were missing gray characters. And again, I wanted somebody who could get justice for, you know, the people who normally would not be able to get it 
you know, we, we love our justice system in America, but it's flawed. It's very flawed. And it's only as strong as the people that are in it and people are corruptible. So, you know, you can you can do everything right and go to jail and be innocent and be killed for it. And you can do everything wrong and get away with it. And so I really wanted to kind of conquer some of that and my frustration in that by writing a world where this order exists and people do these things to get justice. Now, the Order of Amaska is still seen kind of as bad guys by most kingdoms because, you know, they do kill people. But some areas definitely support them and see the work that they're doing as a good thing. So how do you tackle writing a great character? Um, I just look at people around me, including myself. I mean, we, you know, if, if somebody is starving to death and they're homeless and they've tried to go to the shelter and people, you know, beat them up for the food or whatever goes on, I've heard lots of horror stories about it. You know, if they go into a grocery store and steal food, are you really going to put them, you know, in jail for 10 years for, you know, petty theft of food, which they needed for their kids at home? I mean, everybody is capable of some crimes. And when you look at the way people go through life, we're very good at excusing our own behavior when it suits us. So if I just look at the people, you know, in the world and the things they do, like, you know, last night at the Oscars, you know, Will Smith slapped Chris Rock. I honestly think he had every right to do so. The stage slap? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think he had every right to do so, I mean, whether it was staged or not. But, you know, if somebody were bullying me about my disability and my autoimmune disease, my partner wouldn't have to go on stage and slap Chris Rock. I'd do it. So, you know, again, we're all capable of things in the moment. And so if I look at that, that means that we're not all just good and we're not all just evil. We're this kind of mix and people's percentages differ and vary, but we are a mix of both. And so that's easy then to write a great character because that's what they are. Our, um, what is it? Our intelligence is, is enslaved to our ego. Yes. We will always rationalize and excuse our own behaviors because, you know, we think we're, yeah, because we're, we're really very much slaves to our desires. And if you're not aware of that, it's very easy to yep. just excuse it, to rationalize it, to, you know, think that, um, you know, putting a little circle around your Facebook profile makes you a good person. Yep. You know, well, I mean, yeah. We're all keyboard warriors to some degree, and, and then it becomes a matter of how much we put our money where our mouth is after that, you know? So Me, I, I avoid that stuff. It's pointless. <laughs> all, all, it does is, all it does is infuriate me, and then it's like, and then I just, it's just wasted productivity. I don't, you know, I'm just here to, like, I just want to, I just want to sell books and, and talk about stuff. I don't I'll leave all that baggage behind. That's my philosophy on social media. Yeah. But, you know, I can't, you know, I'm, I'm a very emotional person. I, you know, I'm, I'm neurodivergent, so I'm not, you know, neurotypical. I, I am on the spectrum. And so for me, you know, when I see children starving to death in some other country, it feels like I'm like I'm experiencing that or that someone close to me is. And it, it can be very overwhelming. And with my anxiety, it can trigger panic attacks. And so 
there are things that I do like donate to various charities or donate time or do other things actionable so that I feel like I have contributed something or done something to make the world a little better besides just writing and contemplating. And that's just something I have to do. And no, I so I can, I can understand both sides of it because it's because it, social, social media preys on your yes. emotional vulnerability to yep. keep you engaged on it by showing you things that is going to engage you emotionally. And the strongest emotion, the one that gives the best amount of engagement is anger. Mm-hmm. And so I try to just not give social media what they want from me by just avoiding it. Cause I've wasted too many hours and, and yeah, arguments. and it's, like, and sometimes I get quite hurtful with, with some of my friends and stuff and this is not worth it. I think it's some of it's the former teacher in me. You know, I spent, 13 years teaching and I was teaching middle school, which is an age where they're trying to figure out who they are and what they believe and things like that. And I was teaching in the Bible belt. So it was very, very conservative and crazy compared to what I believe. And, uh, oh, no, I remember that. Someone who's non-binary queer and, you know, disabled as well as neurodivergent teaching in that kind of area is very, soul sucking and difficult. And so if I have the opportunity to educate someone, even if they're a lost cause, I will try. And, know. you know, but I get it. There are days I take breaks from social media because it is too much. And I just need yeah. to turn it off and not respond. So. I remember junior high. It was just, you know, I don't know. I never took school seriously. <laughs> I don't know. I don't like, I don't know. Junior high was more just hanging out with my friends, and then we just sort of went to this place called school and did things. Oh. And oh, uh, lucky you. I got bullied a lot and dead animals in my life. I got bullied. And not, I got, don't get me wrong, junior high was the worst for the bullying. Because when I hit high school, it was, I wasn't bullied at all. Mm-hmm. Like, I was really bullied heavily in junior high. Yeah. Um, but I did have friends, right? And so I just hung out with my friends and tried to... Yeah. And I'm sure, you know, time, you know, heals all wounds. So I'm very far removed from my junior high days. And yeah. it didn't leave any, the bullying I experienced didn't leave any lasting emotional scars on me. Yeah. Well, I think the only emotional scar I really have from junior high is the fact that the guy I thought was my best friend after two years told me he hated me and he didn't want to hang out with me anymore. Yeah. So he didn't bully me, but he did just like, yeah, like tell me he never liked me and never liked hanging out with me. And I'm like, we were, we like hung out for, like all the time for two years. <laughs> that that left that yeah that, was, that leaves me. that leaves scars. The bullying really didn't. Yeah. Well, so. there's nothing like opening your locker to dead animals. So oh, that that never happened to me. No one. Yeah, that happened to me. Because again, never. I grew up in the Bible Belt, and if you're not um, as if you're not conservative and super Christian and all that, there are things that school schools will do and the the teachers will overlook and the admin will overlook as well because they're both they're all bible belt people and if you're not they want you gone any way possible Uh, okay yeah i didn't it's a different world out there you know i live yeah i I live in we all (laughs) (laughs) yeah not not to mitigate it's just like yeah my experience like i was bullied yeah no i know it's just i live in seattle now and when i tell people some of the things that i experienced as a teacher in texas or as a student in texas um they look at me and go things like that really happen like they're so sheltered up here i love them i I grew up i grew up in puyallup yeah yeah okay so you know what i'm talking about a little bit yeah because i know puyallup Right. So I grew up, I grew up in, 
I grew up in very much, um, you know, white bread, yeah. all of upper middle class, where I was poor, by the way. I was from, I was one of the poor ones, but mm-hmm. it, you know, it just, it wasn't different. There's was like, I mean, there was no racial stuff because, you know, we had like three black students in our entire school. Yeah. Uh, there were more, like I said, we we're more Asians. We had far more Asians than we did any other, mm-hmm. like it was white, mostly white and a lot of Asians. And I don't even think there was any like Hispanics at my high school or junior high. I certainly don't remember any. Uh, <laughs> like I said, I had like one black friend in high school. Like that's, yep. and he was a good guy. World. Yeah. And, it's know, very much a different world. So I'll Seattle, give you that. Like Seattle's changing now, but. For a good stretch, it was this little liberal bubble where they really didn't quite understand how bad it is in some areas. The racism and you know, homophobia, transphobia, things like that. Like they really sometimes don't get that. So it's always eye opening to me when I talk to other people who, you know, grew up in this area or certain areas where it, it very is, it very much is a white area. Um, just the not understanding of how bad things can be and are sometimes people are because they you know read the media but a lot of people just you know they don't they don't realize well, yeah so that's uh was just i was just bullied for being like a nerd so yeah yeah well, i mean bullying sucks no matter what it's for i mean it just it's a thing. you know the worst part is is that i i bully people too though so oh yeah like, i, I was, too i know i did i was like I mean, there, there, there goes, there, there's a good, like, indication. I was bullied, but I still found someone to bully myself. I had a, I had a friend who became a friend, but at first was not, who the walls of the house she lived in were cardboard. And they used the bathroom in a hole in the ground. Oh, and this is in the 90s. Like, this isn't, I mean, yeah, that's a ways back now, but it's still not, you know, as long ago as most people would think for something like that. And this was in a town that had money. So, you know, there were support systems, but, you know, these were people of color. And so, of course, need not apply. And I remember bullying her at first. And then I got to know her when we became friends. But, yeah, I mean, we all do it. it some of I think some of it is a survival instinct to some degree. And um, a lot of that stuff does go into what I write. Most of, you know, I've got hmm, seven books and something like 15 stories and anthologies out. And I think almost everything I write deals with prejudice to some degree. It's just, you know, something well, it's, I, it's, focus um, on. it's the, I mean, we're, we're, we're not very far removed from living in tribes of 50 people. Right? Yep. I mean, it's only civilizations only been around 10,000 years and humans have been around like 150,000 years. So we're, we're still like figuring this stuff out. We still have a lizard brain going. Well, yeah, that too. But we're, but we're still like, we, we are very much conditioned for an us, you know, for in-group, out-group preference. And however, that's, I mean, racism is just a, a one way that that can, you know, it can manifest in any of a dozen different ways. Just mm-hmm. they're not us. And so therefore we can hit them because they're our rivals in some weird way, in the way back of our brains that you're not even aware of that this happens. I don't know. Maybe we'll figure it out one day. <laughs> I see. Be great. Hope so. There'd be a lot less. There'd be a lot less pain in the world. That there would. Well, are you working on anything else? Uh, any new projects? Uh, this is book one. Is there more in the series already out, or do you have like the next book? To so, um, a Maskin's War is book two, and it came out two years ago. Um, 
Book three is due out this summer. I'm having a bit of a slight delay because my autoimmune disorder actually built cataracts in my eyes. I'm not that old, and so it's unusual and kind of, I think only like 30% of people end up with this kind of situation. So I actually have to go get um, several surgeries to fix my eyes. But when all of it kicked in this year, I can't see out of my left eye, and my right eye is very blurry, which makes writing and editing difficult and tedious. I'm doing I'm really, it. I hope, there's, I hope your surgery goes well. Yeah, well, I mean, cataract surgery is, it's scary to me because it's surgery on my eyes, but they do it every day, and it's actually a fairly common surgery now. Yeah. yeah the yeah. cool thing is, is when they're done with it, I'll, I should have, like, 20-20 vision. So I won't need my glasses anymore, <laughs> which is kind of cool. My roommate, he um he had had eye surgery a couple years ago, but they didn't, he still has to wear his glasses. I don't remember what it was. He had, um... He got like something somehow like got into his eye, like inside oh, the, yeah. um, I don't remember what it was, but it was like some like weird growth, something happened inside his eye and it broke off and floated around in there or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, so. Cataracts ruin the lens in your eye. So they have to yeah. take out your lens and replace it with an artificial one, which okay. basically fixes your vision problem. <laughs> so there's a lot of vision issues or lens changes. Yeah, yeah, because your lens is um your lens isn't properly formed. That's why I wear glasses right now. Because <laughs> yep. I can't because I can't see anything beyond a foot in front of me yeah. clearly. Oh, it's it sucks because I just got all you know I discovered online glasses and I just got all these really cute frames and stuff, and I was like, yay, look, I can match my frames to some of my outfits, and and now I'm not gonna need them. <laughs> but you know, it, it's just you can do the hipster thing and pop out the lenses. Yeah, I probably will because they're way too cool looking. But, yeah, it's definitely been a little bit of a delay, but it is it is happening. Um, I did just have a short story come out in in a tie-in fiction piece called The Last Cities of Earth. And uh, Kevin J. Anderson's publishing house, uh, Wordfire Press, just published it. And so it deals with uh, the art of Jeff Sturgeon, who he write, he, he does a lot of uh, post-apocalyptic art that's just gorgeous on metal. And it's just it's beautiful. And so it. it ties into his world that he paints and um it's got a lot of big name authors in it as well and so um that's something people can check out and then i'm also working on a standalone novel for the um boheme world and so after a mask and honor is done which ends that trilogy there's also a standalone book that'll come out later this year and i'm hoping my short story book will also come out uh a lot of things are also dependent upon um the supply delays that are impacting publishing and things like that too. So we shall see. My roommate has a business and I hear about that all the time. Yep. He's like, I have uh, I have all this money in my bank account and I can't buy enough stuff with it. Yeah. It's just, it's kind of crazy because the publishing schedules, you know, they typically have a certain number of things that come out in a month based on what yeah. printers can handle and things like that. And so when your printers can't get paper, because the factories in China can only work so many day or hours per day right now because of COVID. It's like three hours and then the factory shuts down and then they clean and then they come back for another three. It's weird. But because of all those delays, it impacts everything down the line. And, you know, even if you're, you know, independent published or self-published, even even that area is getting hit with delays. 
because again, you still have to have printers that print books and they still need paper and ink and things that are just not making it here. So everything's up in the air. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I read a lot of like manga and I get emails like every week saying like, well, this release date got pushed up a month or a week or, mm-hmm. or six months. Not sure why that one got pushed back six months. Anyways, that's just that's weird or there. It's like it's like this one got pushed back two weeks, a month, yeah. six months. Wait, what? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because you know I know a lot of writers. Seattle is a huge area for writers. There are a lot of us here, especially for science fiction and fantasy, which is mainly what I write. And I know a lot of people who run small presses in the area too. And so you know I get to hear on my Facebook wall, everybody groaning about, well, my book is now coming out a year later, or, oh my gosh, I was supposed to publish this this year, and that's not happening, and you get all the itty-bitty details, like I'm sure you do, through your roommate, so it's it's interesting. Yeah, he was like, uh, like I got a $2,000 shipment from Japan, and it cost me 1000 in shipping. Yep, it's crazy. I, You know, Kickstarter people are feeling that, too, and Indiegogo, because... A lot of times people will estimate shipping and then shipping increases and they're like, oh, I'll just bite that. But now biting that is like, you know, oh, gosh, now half of my money is going to that. It it can be frightening. Well, um, if you want to let our listeners know where they can connect with you on the Internet. Sure thing. So I'm at ravenoak.net. That's raven like the bird, oak like the tree dot net. Don't go to .com. That's owned by somebody in China who wants to sell it to me for $5 million, which I don't have. So ravenoak.net. If you go there and go to the bottom of the page, I have all my social media links. I'm on Facebook as an author. I also have a reader group called The Conspiracy on on Facebook, as well as the mailing list. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. You name it, I'm there. And so you're welcome to uh, follow me on any or all of those places. And uh, my books are available pretty much anywhere worldwide. Uh, yes, at Amazon, but also at Barnes and Nobles, indie bookstores, you name it, they can order it. Awesome. Well, it was really great chatting with you, Raven. Indeed. Thanks for having me. You have a good one. You too. This has been Authors in Focus. You can find my fantasy novels on Amazon. Follow news of my writing at my blog jmd-read.com and follow me on twitter at jmdread you can also join my reader group on facebook fantastical worlds of the imagination you can find more episodes of the podcast at fantasy-focus.com wherever your favorite podcast is hosted